Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers, leading experts, all packed into a concise and informative update. It's Monday, the 5th of February. Coming up in the program, new worries over the national health insurance concept. The debate over employment equity targets intensifies how to plug our infrastructure development gaps, why mining companies are slow to use waste-derived fuel, and the AFCON South Africa-Nigeria semi-final battle and the dollar value of each squad. Playing prominently on our website today, the lobby groups Business Unity South Africa and Business for South Africa are calling on President Ramaphosa to kick the National Health Insurance Bill back to the National Assembly on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. Let's start the program now with Martin Kingston, Chair of Business for South Africa. Martin, a very warm welcome to you. In what way does your organization believe this bill is unconstitutional? Well, good afternoon, Jeremy, to you and your listeners. It's unconstitutional in a number of respects, both procedurally and substantively. Uh, we've indicated from the outset that we are fully supportive of the need for universal health care coverage, and we can work with an amended form of the NHI bill, but not uh, the form that is currently before the president, which we think is unimplementable. We don't think that it's viable, and it's certainly uh, unaffordable. And there were both procedural and, in our opinion, substantive sort of deficiencies in the bill. Procedurally, for example, although it's gone through uh, both National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces, and although there were many inputs from uh, a wide diversity of stakeholders, not one of those inputs was taken into consideration. The same thing happened in the National Council of Provinces when there were submissions uh, by the NCOP at provincial level, not one. Uh, applied, and even the National Department of Health, when it sought to clarify issues, found that the legislation as originally tabled uh, has uh, persisted in its current form. It hasn't served in front of NEDLAC in the manner in which it should, uh, and indeed it, there hasn't been you know, due process in terms of how such a very important bill uh, should be considered, uh, how its economic impact should be assessed. And we think that there is no benefit whatsoever, before I get to the legislative uh, flaws, uh, in the president signing something into law uh, which actually is unimplementable and is bound to meet a number of legal challenges, including Mm -hmm. potentially, of course, from the business community itself. So notwithstanding then, Martin, your position on achieving universal health care, let's look at the legislative side then. What specific changes or amendments then would Business for South Africa be recommending to make this bill more constitutionally sound and, uh, and more economically viable? Uh, absolutely. So what we've indicated, for example, is that Section 33 of the draft bill is unconstitutional. It gives the minister unfettered power to determine what role the medical schemes can play. I think we've all had experience of unfettered authority given to ministers. Uh, We think that's very damaging to the private healthcare sector, undermines all levels of confidence for investment today and indeed uh, into the future. 
Uh, we think that a single fund model, which is being proposed, introduces concentration risk and in fact adversely affects the population at large, uh, its ability to seek care in the private sector. That's a right, of course, uh, under the Constitution. Uh, we think the procedures for accessing health care themselves could potentially hinder or violate the right to access health care uh, services. It provides for the uh, addition of new taxes and new tax policies. We all know that uh, under the Constitution that has to be handled by National Treasury, not by the Department of Health uh, in a money bill. Uh, there are other clauses, including the contracting uh, provisions, which we think are inconsistent with the principles of value-based uh, care and strategic uh, purchasing. And even the rollout that's envisaged in the bill is linked to milestones that are arbitrary and in fact some of which we've already uh, passed. Uh, what we are concerned about, of course, Jeremy, is that rather than going down this road, what we should be doing is harnessing all of the resources that are available uh, within the country, including within the private sector, as we, I think, uh, properly demonstrated during the pandemic and during the vaccination rollout, working in partnership with government and other stakeholders, as we're doing currently in the context of our partnership with government with respect to energy, transport, and logistics, and crime and corruption. The worst thing we can do is alienate providers uh, of healthcare services uh, from the very largest to indeed the very smallest, uh, who can't have the confidence as to what the future looks like under the current draft legislation, and who don't have the flexibility afforded to them under the Constitution. Is your principal concern the cost of national health insurance or the impact on healthcare? Uh, it's actually both. I mean, the reality is that what we can't do is just appropriate the funds that are being used uh, in uh, the private healthcare sector at the moment. That's a matter of choice for the individuals concerned. But equally, I think what we've established, in particular during the pandemic and thereafter, is that we have a fundamentally broken public healthcare system uh, which needs to be reinforced. That can only be done uh, by working collaboratively with everybody. Secondly, in a fiscally constrained environment, uh, we don't believe that the current model uh, is affordable. We don't think that there is indeed the headroom for government to commit the funds that are required to implement. So what we need to do is ensure that we do so in a progressive staged manner, as they're suggesting, but mindful of the fact that we need to crowd in resources. That's not just financial resources, that's skills and capabilities across the country. Uh, to ensure that we can significantly improve the quality of health care uh, to the population at large, particularly those who are most disadvantaged currently. And what happens if you don't hear from the President's office? Well, if we don't hear from the President's office, actually, it's not a question, actually, of hearing from the President's office. It's whether or not the President decides to sign the legislation into law as it currently stands, as opposed to referring it back to Parliament, which is what we are proposing should happen. In that event, and we all understand the political importance of being able to demonstrate that universal health care is progressing, and we believe it is, uh, then I have no doubt that there will be many uh, legislative attempts uh, to prevent it. And as I said, business itself is considering its options in that regard. That's the worst possible outcome, of course. What we want to do is progress this in the spirit of collaboration and partnership with government as quickly as possible but in an implementable and economically viable manner. Martin Kingston is the chair of uh, the organization Business for South Africa. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. 
Now, government is making changes to propose new employment equity targets, including doing away with specific targets for African, coloured, Indian and white workers. Late last year, government published new proposed targets, you might recall, which do away with the distinction between provincial and national targets. Well, there's been a lot of criticism in that respect. More now from Khanki Matabani from the Black Business Council. And firstly, then, welcome. And how do you view the changes? Firstly, we, we agree with the amendment in principle, but we are worried that governments, every time they are trying to do a good thing for the previously disadvantaged and the previously advantaged make noise, basically change. So we have, we have seen this type of a behavior for the past eight years of democracy, that the government is a coward and, and, and basically there's no political will to empower the previously disadvantaged. They are forever trying to please the previously advantaged. Because if you look at this, it's almost rewriting history because the previously disadvantaged people were, were not oppressed in the same way. So Africans were oppressed more, the Colors, Indians, and, and so on. So just to lump and lump all these categories in, into one, it shows there's no appreciation of history and what happened. So what, we, what do you we, believe? We, well, what, what do you believe the impact then is going to be once these or if these become reality? Our our worry is that once you lump things like this, it means nothing is going to be implemented anyway. Because if people are scared to even make regulations, it means they are not going to implement the same regulations in, in the way that will change the path. Uh, again, uh, trying to please the, the previously advantaged. That's one part. The second part is that uh, this year is 26 years of the Employment Equity Act, and we have not seen government implementing it, especially forcing private sector to implement it the way it's supposed to have been implemented, mainly because government does not have enough capacity to monitor the implementation of any legislation. So for us, we, we are worried that even if the watered-down regulations are passed. They are not going to be implemented. We'll be waiting another 30 years of democracy to see a snail-paced change. So we, we, we are really not impressed with the way government is operating, especially when it comes to legislation that is supposed to empower the previously disadvantaged. Right, all right. So when you raise this issue with the Labour Minister or the Labour Ministry, what are you telling them and what sort of response are you getting? We will make the, the submissions as, because this is for public comments, uh, so we will make our inputs. But what we tell the government, we tell them to be bold because our, our biggest, biggest worry is that the more you delay incorporating and including the majority in the economy, you are actually increasing the risk of one day rendering this country ungovernable because the, the majority, you cannot keep on postponing the the majority empowering the majority you can do it with the minority like in europe but in in south africa because you are trying to empower the majority you cannot keep on postponing it you are, you are running a risk of one day the majority are going to say this democracy is not working let's take things into our own hands so it's a, it's a huge future risk for what, what they are trying to do Government is insisting that these new targets are not quotas but are instead a form of affirmative action. What is your understanding of that statement? Yeah, I think they're just playing with words uh, because you need to start with the problem statement. What is the problem that we're trying to solve? We're trying to reverse the 
job reservations and other legislation of the past that were basically excluding the majority. So that's the problem statement. So if how do you solve that problem statement? Uh, you solve it by making sure that you come with the legislation and regulations that are going to reverse that. And that is allowed by the constitution, by the way. So I, we, we really don't know what they are trying to do by, by being coward and trying to accommodate, by all means accommodate uh, the, the previously advantage while they are not accommodating the previously disadvantaged. Uh, just, it's, just, it's, it's not a yeah. sustainable solution to so, problems. So just finally, if it's not a sustainable solution then, do you think ultimately this is going to be challenged legally? Yeah, it, yeah it's possible it's, it's going to be challenged legally. Uh, we, we will also consult and see what needs to be done for from, from our side and to make sure that our constituencies are are taken into mm. consideration. But yeah, but anything is possible in South Africa. Sure. Uh, okay. When people are not happy with any legislation, they've got the right to take it uh, constitutionally. But for us, government is supposed to use the, the majority and, and, and come with legislation that are reversing the imbalances of the past. But the way they are trying to be too accommodative to the minorities and those who party benefited from the past. It's not going to help anyone. Well, you're very clear on your stance. Uh, Hanki Matabani from the Black Business Council, thank you very much for joining me. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, there's a new study out by the Development Bank and the World Bank, and the top line is that South Africa needs to close its infrastructure development gap. The study provides important new insight into the sizable infrastructure and related spending that is needed to close South Africa's sustainable development goal gap for water, sanitation, transport and education. It is an important document. And joining me now is Zef Ntlako, who is Chief Economist at the Development Bank of South Africa. Mr Ntlako, welcome to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you explain, first of all, very briefly, what you mean by the development gap then we can push the conversation after that. So the infrastructure development gap is a quantification of uh, how much would we need to uh, achieve the SDG goals. So we are specifically talking about the SDG goals that are impacted on by infrastructure development. And the sectors that we have focused on for this, this is one of two uh, reports that we will be doing. The sectors that we are focused on now is transport, education, water, and sanitation. So there's a couple of uh, targets, SDG targets, around Mm. these sectors, but specifically for infrastructure. So how then do you go around prioritizing and allocating resources efficiently to address those gaps? That's a very important uh, question, Jeremy. We're looking to first understand what is the size of the gap, Uh, which this report has done. We have uh, uh, created three scenarios to try and and quantify these gaps. So there's a low minimum spending scenario, which is less ambitious, of course. Then there's a preferred scenario, which is quite uh, reasonably ambitious and and with high efficiencies in it. Then there's the upper end maximum scenario. Mm. Those scenarios, if you look at the total uh, level of spending that we need, uh, the minimum uh, spending is around 4.8 trillion in the eight years to 2030, and the upper end is, is 6.2 trillion. The middle preferred scenario is around 5.4 uh, trillion. 
Now, we need uh, policymakers, which is the government departments that we've been working with on this, uh, developing this report. We need them to make very uh, sound policy choices because the way we do the scenarios is informed by uh, one, the spending levels, uh, what we need to spend, both new infrastructure and uh, you know maintaining existing infrastructure, but it's also informed by policy choices that they make. And we've made those policy recommendations in this in this report, uh, about 42 recommendations that we've made across these three sectors. We need them to make sound policy choices. That's the one level of trying to prioritize. The second level of prioritization is the ambition that uh, government will have. As I said, the three scenarios. So what is the level of ambition that they will they think is, is appropriate. And and of course, that has nothing to do with whether or not government can afford it. That's a separate conversation. How do you decide then on that appetite or that level that you talk about? So that is a function of where we are economically. If you, if you look at the, let's say, 10, 12 years, we have averaged 1% in GDP growth. Investment, total investment to GDP has averaged about 16, 17%. Now that's low. So the the interventions that we want to make must be in the context and the size of the challenge that we face. So that's very important. So that's how we go about saying, okay, overall, what is it that uh, we need to focus on? And uh, the gaps that we have identified are actually channeling us to, to put our interventions in there. And there is a whole range of players in this infrastructure development space. What becomes very important is the coordination of this space right across from policymakers, financiers, developers, and so on. There should be proper coordination and the the infrastructure development bill that is out for comment is quite critical for us because we need to get that bill right to ensure that institutions and processes in the infrastructure Mm. development system are properly coordinated. And that coordination also speaks to another point that the study emphasizes, not just about increasing budgets, but perhaps more importantly, ensuring that there is efficient and, I guess, transparent expenditure. That's correct. So the methodology we've used to quantify the, the infrastructure development gap is called uh, beyond the gap methodology. It's a World Bank methodology, but what it does is you estimate uh, the demand uh, over the period that you want to assess the demand. So in our case, to 2030, where do we see GDP going? Where do we see population going? Where do we see spatial disparities of infrastructure and so on? Then you do the scenarios in terms of uh, those two elements, spending and policy. Then you assess how much you did cost to actually lay out new infrastructure over that time, new infrastructure that will be required over and above what you have, but then how much will it cost to maintain this infrastructure over that period? You overlay that with a resilience assessment. In Mm. other words, you say, if there are climate hazards, uh, will this infrastructure stand the test of time? And we're talking here, the the roads, uh, the schools, and so on. So you 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 take all of that uh, and you you then you then come up with the with a view on the gap itself. 
I'm going to leave it there and thank you so much for the insight. That's uh, Zefan Tleko, who's the chief economist at the Development Bank. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I think it's fair to say that it is common cause the mining sector produces a significant amount of waste, which has a large impact on the environment and on communities across the country. And one of the questions on the agenda for this year's mining in Daba is how can African producers build alternative energy sources to support local beneficiation as well as mining prospects? Let's uh, discuss that in a little bit more detail now with Kate Stubbs, who is marketing director at the company Interwaste. Kate, very briefly, tell me what type of waste we're talking about. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, From the mining industry perspective, there's quite a wide variety of waste. Obviously, you have some of your basic wastes, um, from your canteen waste to your recycling, you know, your cardboard tins, boxes, that standard waste. But you also have quite hazardous waste. You have a lot of hydrocarbon waste. And and then depending on on what type of mining operation it, it is, you often find sort of large areas of contaminated soil, also typically more in the hydrocarbon space. So, yeah, you, you do tend to um, have a wide range of wastes, um, also from tailings dams and in terms of the effluent side of things. Mm. And obviously this has a very negative impact on the environment. We don't need to discuss that. But something that is starting to gain traction among mining companies is a concept called zero waste to landfill. What is that? Yeah, zero waste to landfill strategies are basically companies that are looking at and have assessed their waste and have taken a policy that none of their waste will be disposed of in a landfill. So it's a good step in the direction of um, really forcing companies to relook at their waste and find alternative solutions for them. So how do they go about doing that? What are those effective strategies and how best uh, are they incorporated? Yeah, the first the first step is uh, um, understanding where your waste is cr- created and what waste you have. Um, it typically, it's it's quite a multidisciplinary approach because you're going to work across the mine with mine managers and your supply chain managers. But you need to understand your waste streams. You need to then align them to to legal compliance. South Africa has quite a robust uh, waste legislation, but it is also evolving. So you need to ensure that whatever solutions you're going to design for your um, who your waste processing is aligned to legislation um, and then work with various um, specialists in the field to understand whatever type of waste it is, what other solutions are available for you. Um, and there, there's lots of beneficiation happening. So, you know, there is the standard recycling, there could be uh, processes for reuse um, and a lot of waste can actually also be um, converted to, to energy. So that's quite an exciting space to also look at your decarbonisation goals and ESG goals. Before we talk about the energy side of it, um, I would suggest to you that the legislation might be there, but because of cost, often there is a reticence to implement the strategies that you're talking about. Absolutely, and we see that all the time. Unfortunately, it also is a hands-on commodity cycle, so cost plays a huge role here. In the short term, it can appear to be more costly sometimes looking at alternatives for your waste, but we've a proven track record with many clients. When you start addressing your waste effectively and more holistically and strategically over time, that cost will reduce. But in in, in certain uh, waste types of the reprocessing, um, that, that that's something, especially when we get into waste to energy and on alternative solutions, there is a commercial reality that has to be assessed. So these, well, the so-called waste-derived fuel production, um, how is that derived and how is it best implemented and what are the advantages thereof? Yeah, so, I mean, we reprocess two simple forms of waste-derived fuel. One is a solid waste-derived fuel. That's a, um, a fuel 
made out of non-recyclable uh, dry waste, so your multi-layered packaging, um, some, some, some municipal solid waste. Um, we process it um, in quite an environmentally friendly way. It doesn't need some, some, some refuse derived fuels need drying, but ours is dry material that goes to the quality. It's sort of shredded and baled and is a quality of A-grade coal. So that's taking non-recycled dry waste and converting that into a fuel that we fed into various systems from cement kilns to other biogas plants to, 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 as a fuel. Then there's a, a liquid uh, waste-derived fuel um, that's typically made of hydrocarbon waste, oils, and sludges and gunks, some chemical hazardous waste. It's um, a liquid fuel that is also co-fed. At the moment, we co-feed it into a cement kiln um, uh, um, as a replacement to fossil fuel. So, I mean, the benefits are you're taking waste that is otherwise typically probably being disposed of to landfill um, and um, converting it into a useful resource. So you're reducing carbon emissions and environmental sort of contamination. But it's going to take a while before this becomes a, a, a standard operating procedure, I imagine. Yeah, it's, it's operating on a small smaller scale at the moment, but as our energy crisis grows and the cost of our energy rise and companies with a, a stronger commitment to environmental protection, we're seeing them certainly start investing in those solutions. All right, from Interwaste, Kate Stubbs, thank you very much indeed. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And finally, on the Monday edition, we're going to uh, end on a footballing note. Uh, Bafana Bafana beating Cape Verde 2-1 in penalties to set up a clash with Nigeria in the semi-finals of the African Cup of Nations. So the question that many sports fans are asking is, what has changed in the structure of the squad where performances in recent years have been subpar, to say the least? Michael Madeira is at Scroller Africa. He's a sports writer. Welcome and... What has changed? Wafana Wafana, uh, over the years, they've been underperforming uh, on the continent. They've often failed to qualify for AFCON. Just to qualify has been a difficulty for them. And then when, on the occasions that they've qualified, they failed to get to the later stages of the tournament. But then this time around, they did well from the good stages up until to the knockout. So there is a sense of belief in the team that, no, guys, we can do it. We can... Uh, can go all the way to the final. So I think the mentality, the attitude is changing the team. After all these years of criticism that the team has been underwhelming. What do you believe has changed that or has altered their ability to start believing in themselves again? I'll talk about maybe consistency. This is a team which has been blowing hot and cold. You don't know what they're going to do the next game. Today, they win emphatically. Then tomorrow, they draw or lose to a lowly ranked side. But Hugo Bruce, I think uh, he knows how to win. One AFCON before with Cameroon, with a squad that didn't have uh, about uh, eight key players Mm. after most players withdrew from the tournament. So you see that this is the guy who really knows how to win AFCON. So 
I think uh, that is that has been a major uh, factor in the Bafana Bafana squad right now. And you look look at the squad, mostly comprised of Premier Soccer League players. And then now in Ivory Coast they are facing teams that have got players dominated by European best players. Some of them playing in the biggest leagues in Europe. So the Hugo Bruce effect we can see it right now. That's worth reflecting on because this is a squad, as you say, that doesn't have a single player on their AFCON 2023 roster that plays in a top 10 league team in Europe. What is also interesting is the total market value of their roster is just over $24 million. Their semi-final mm. opponent, Nigeria, uh, has, a, has a market value of around $358 million. I mean, that is mm. a real stark difference, isn't it? Yes, uh, definitely. L- look at the upcoming results of this. Uh, you realize that the big guns with uh, players uh, like they are trading uh, in the maybe top five leagues in Europe, they've been going home. And there have been, there've been major upsets from a team that have what we can call maybe average players or players that are not too much exposed to the highest level of football. So that might not really work when uh, Rafana faced Nigeria. It also happened in uh, 2017 uh, in Uyo when uh, Rafana were playing the 2019 uh, Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. They went to Nigeria with uh, a squad that was mostly comprised of PSL players, but they upset Nigeria in their own backyard in Uyo. So this might, we might have a repeat of that scenario again. Mm. You, you talk about the coach knowing what it takes to win this tournament. What is that, do you yeah. think? Uh, this is a guy with a, let me talk about his experience. This is a guy who is a coach in Belgium, in Europe, he, he way back during his playing days. Uh, he was a top uh, professional. So I think he's mastered the art of how to, to win AFCON. Was look at, the, at this tournament right now. We've got top coaches, well-celebrated coaches, with well-celebrated players. Like what I, was, what I was saying, the guys who play in the top five leagues in Europe, but they are struggling with those guys. A top coach with top players, but they are still struggling. Mm. Now we have uh, Hugo Bruce with his PSL guys, but look what he's doing. And just a quick one in conclusion, suddenly the stakes have become a whole lot higher for South Africa. Do you believe, on the back of what you've just told me, that we have the depth and the commitment to push all the way to the final and even win it? Yeah, they could. They could. It goes back to the fact that I was saying that uh, now there is a very big sense of uh, belief in the team. That yes, guys, we can do it. And then uh, you can see that some of the players they are growing in confidence with each game, mm. as each game passes. And uh, for the past two games, I can tell you, look at uh, what Ronald Williams did uh, last weekend. Look at uh, what Tewoko Mokena did last week when we beat Morocco. So you see that the players, they are growing in confidence with each passing game. They are now at home. They are now comfortable. You don't see any nerves. I'm going to leave it there. Michael Madeira from Scroller Africa, thank you very much for joining me. And finally, on our daily online poll today, we'd like your view on Business for South Africa's stance on the National Health Insurance Bill. Uh, It might lack constitutionality, it lacks balance, or are you worried about the rollout? Uh, If you would like to participate in that poll, 
All you need to go is uh, or pay a visit to uh, MoneyWeb on Twitter X or our LinkedIn page. Uh, start voting and we'll have the results on the program tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening and goodbye to you. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.